Hi, and welcome to Spilling Chai. I'm your host, Anisha Hussain. You may know me as the Bangladeshi American cable news commentator who debates toxic masculinity with Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Or maybe you've read my articles on CNN about toxic white supremacy. While I may be a pro at giving my opinion and analysis on the headlines, something you don't get to hear me do is ask the questions and talk about something other than the news. And that's what I'm all about doing right now, because between coronavirus, a global lockdown, and social isolation, my Persian cats and I need a break. This podcast, Billing Chai, is about conversations. I want to feel inspired, and radio is such a great medium to have really in-depth conversations and to take the time to have them. In this show, I'm going to be talking to brilliant writers, passionate activists, and amazing artists, and I want you to join us. This podcast is also a PSA on behalf of all brown people that in most of the Asia and the Middle East, chai is not a latte. Instead, it's the best kind of tea. And on this podcast, we are all about spilling it. So pour yourself a cup and pull up a seat. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 11 of Spilling Chai, coming to you from Washington, D.C., In the aftermath of George Floyd's brutal murder at the hands of the police, a racial reckoning spread across the country, which is frankly still going strong. But another reckoning is taking place in America's newsrooms, calling out the media industry for how it contributes to a racist culture that renders black journalists voiceless. Frankly, most people of color in the media can relate. Well, one journalist is taking a leading role in confronting outdated newsroom norms. I am talking about Wesley Lowry. Lowry is a journalist at CBS News, formerly with The Washington Post. He was a lead on The Post's Fatal Force project that won the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting in 2016, as well as the author of They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement. After becoming a CNN political contributor in 2017, this year Lowry was announced as a correspondent for 60 and 6, a short-form spinoff of 60 Minutes for Quibi, and he joins us today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Wes. You have spent so much time in Minneapolis in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. What was it like reporting from the ground there? What was the relationship between Black people and the police like before Floyd's stuff? So it was really interesting on the ground. You know, I have over the years spent time in a lot of different cities that have seen controversial police killings, mass protests, at times uh, violent riots. When I got to Minneapolis, I got there after most of the violence was over, but there were still big protests happening every night and every day. And there was a lot of energy on the ground, a desire for things to actually be different. You know, I think that what we forget is that When a city erupts like this, it's a volcano that's been stirring beneath the surface for a long time. It's not something that just suddenly happened. It's something that's been there. And it speaks to what the histories have been in so many of these places. When you look at Minneapolis, it's an excellent example of that. Mm -hmm. This is a city that, despite being relatively liberal, has deep racial inequities and racial disparities and all types of outcomes, be it income, be it family wealth, be it home ownership health disparities, and then criminal justice disparities. This is a city that also has seen 
a number of big controversial cases, mm-hmm. right? This is a city that previously had the killings of Jamar Clark and Philando Castile in the suburbs, Justine Damon. And so this is a place that has had a lot of protest over the years and has attempted to do a lot of reforms. The current police chief there is someone who is very respected as a reformer, but is pretty well liked in the city, all things considered. You have a very liberal city council and mayor. And yet, despite all of those things, George Floyd was still killed. And so I think that a lot of what I saw on the ground was people who were just exhausted. They were tired of going through this process time and time again and said, "Okay, finally, something needs to change. Did you feel like that was really the breaking point? You know that famous Martin Luther King quote when he says, the riot is the language of the unheard? Because I think that for a lot of white Americans, they don't get that this moment has been centuries in the making. This wasn't just about one episode, but centuries, centuries building to this moment. Do you feel like that? Of course. And I think that that's one of the difficulties always is that people try to make these about individual episodes, but they're almost never at it. They're always about patterns of behavior that stretch not just lifetimes, not just generations, but that stretch through history. And so you you can't, there's no such thing as an isolated incident. You recently wrote that the views and inclination of whiteness are accepted as objective neutral. You stipulate that news organizations' core values needs to be truth, not the perception of objectivity. We are seeing major media outlets now finally, slowly, using the words racist and lie more, especially when describing the Trump administration and Donald Trump's own actions. Do you feel like what we're seeing is going to have a lasting impact in American newsrooms? Or is this just a passing moment? Are you optimistic? Because you're right in the center of things. Yeah, well, you know, and I think that, and I don't know that it's determined one way or the other yet. I still think that we, it remains to be seen the changes or the actions that are taken in this moment, if they are piecemeal, if they are just meant to quell controversy, or if they actually start changing things in any real or systemic ways in the media industry. And like I said, it's still too early. I think there are plenty of people who are doing and saying the right things, or at least attempting to do and say the right things. There are a lot of big institutions that have doubled down and tripled down and have been very resistant to suggestions of any types of changes. And I think that that's been really difficult for folks who are still working in these newsrooms. Do you think that those people who want to just, quote, get this moment over with and have things go back to normal and how they were in the newsroom and how they're producing things in the newsroom, are they also racist? Again, I think it varies a lot, not just from news outlet to news outlet, but it also varies a lot from person to person, manager to manager in these places. And so that can be really difficult. What's also true is that these moments are very uncomfortable for a lot of people. For people who don't spend any time thinking or talking about race, it's very uncomfortable to suddenly be confronted with the idea that perhaps there are things that are wrong about it. And so for a lot of folks, they just want to get through this and get this over with as quickly as possible so things could go, quote unquote, back to normal. Because what I'm also seeing is that a lot of people don't know what being racist actually means. They think it's about being an evil, horrible person. But most Americans don't understand everyday racists and everyday racism. No. Well, because they don't have any expertise in it other than being at times the perpetrators, right? But the average minority in America, much less black person in America, has a PhD in American racism. Understand how it works, how it manifests, the history, the subtext, right? 
Yeah. And the average white American is that guy in your poli sci 101 class freshman year who read one book and thinks he can tell the professor how communism works, right? Or like that it's this sense of we're having a conversation, but not everyone is prepared in the same way. Mm-hmm. And not everyone has the same amount of information. And so it becomes really difficult sometimes to have these conversations. But beyond that, right, so much of these conversations immediately default into defensiveness. And we see this in the media context and we see this in the interpersonal context where it's very hard to have these conversations because people immediately get really defensive and then you can't tell the truth. Dan Frumkin, the editor of Press Watch, wrote about you recently, and he said that you're right when you say that the media's notion of neutrality is an imaginary white guy. How do you think our reporting would change if American newsrooms reflected America and we stopped writing for this imaginary guy? How much richer would our journalism be? And how can we let this white guy go? You know, I think that, one, by having different people in the room who, when they imagine their reader, don't imagine that white guy, (laughs) right, is part of it. And I think that taking those things into perspective are really important. So, for example, one of the ways that this manifests is, and you raised this question already about calling things or statements racist and being willing to say that. And one of the reasons people or institutions are slow or unwilling to do that is because they are worried that that imaginary white guy is going to think that's unfair, that's mean to Donald Trump. Based on his definition of racism, this statement was not racist, and that we might lose credibility with that person. What we do not ever talk about or imagine is my black grandmother, who is going to read this article and these comments and go, how could you not call this clearly racist thing racist? And the credibility we lose with her. And I think that that is one of the things that harms us, is that we think we are retaining credibility mm-hmm. by pulling punches this way. But in fact, we are further isolating ourselves from the communities that both most need our journalism and who we should be courting. The people who we're supposed to be standing up for as the fourth statement, not the powerful people, but the powerless people. And when we refuse to tell the truth, we napalm our own credibility. You said that sometimes you have to pause and say, are we helping or hurting the world right now with the way we're framing things, with the way we're talking about things, with the context we're providing and the stories we choose to tell? Will American journalism survive Trump? Yes, I think American journalism will survive Trump because American journalism is going to survive one way or the other, no matter what. What I also think is that two things can be true at once. The Trump administration is very different than a lot of other presidential administrations we've had, both tonally, stylistically, politically. But also, there can be an inclination to prescribe a lot to Donald Trump and his impact in this era, when the reality is Donald Trump is a symptom of the American experiment. He's not this aberration, you know, and so because of that, the things that might be exposed as problems in American journalism in the Trump administration were always there. They just come out in a sharper relief because of this administration. But specifically, specifically his attacks on the press. I mean, if Trump comes back, which he could for another four years, would we be able to take another four years of the free press being villainized? You know, sometimes I think what's going to happen to the free press? Wouldn't he just come down harder if he wins the second term? But Donald Trump's not doing or saying much that the Republicans haven't done for 30 years. 
like every Republican convention since the 80s has has signs that say don't believe the liberal media. I just don't like as a premise believe that is it true that there are individual cases where he does and says things that go farther than others have? Yes. But this campaign to discredit the free press has been something that one of our major political parties has embraced for decades. Yeah. And Donald Trump is just the natural progression of that. And so swap Donald Trump out for Ted Cruz. And do we think that he wouldn't be attacking the press this way? Maybe not. If Trump's at a 10, maybe Ted Cruz would be at an 8. <laughs> right? But substantively, there's not a major difference there in terms of one of the most powerful people in the country attacking the concepts of free press, right? Or sub in Tom Cotton or sub in insert whomever, right? That attacking the press and the legitimacy of the press has been one of the major planks of the Republican Party for decades. And so, again, I think that that's going to be there. And I think two things can be true, right? I think that some of our frustration with the extent to which we are having a credibility crisis unquestionably goes towards the politics of this moment. But one of the reasons we don't have credibility is also in part because of the decisions we make. And I think it can be a little easy sometimes to scapegoat, be it the president or anyone else. Again, that's not to say that the president hasn't played a major role or his political party has not played a major role. And by the way, both political parties do this. Every politician hates the press when the press is reporting bad things about it. And so that's something we can accept as well. But I do think that we haven't necessarily done ourselves a lot of favors as an industry in terms of always being credible, always being rigorous listening to a diverse set of voices, there are entire parts of the population we've written off and whose realities we have not reflected in our coverage for decades. Mm -hmm. And because of that, those people don't trust us. So you are so young, Wes. You won a Pulitzer. You're the author of two books. What inspires you? What motivates you to do the work that you do? Huh, well, look, I love telling stories. I love talking to people. I love learning. I think about being a journalist, I get to wake up every day and learn a bunch about something I didn't know anything about when I started. And I think that that is great. It's awesome. It's a really good and amazing way to spend my day every day. And look, I know that I might not always want to do this work, right? I might not always want to have to be so read into the news cycle. I, I may not always want to cover such difficult things, but as long as I'm doing it, I want to do it to the best of my ability. And so every morning I wake up and just <laughs> try to work really hard. What are you working on next? What's making you want to spill the tea, spill the chai? <laughs> um, well, so I actually have a documentary coming out this Friday on ABC that looks back at a lynching in Georgia, 1983, lynching of a man named Timothy Coggins. So 9 p.m. on Friday night on ABC, that premieres, and I've got a piece for GQ that'll publish sometime this week as well. And so that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to or excited for to kind of get it out there and get it into the world. best friend and executive producer of Spilling Chai, Bilal Qureshi, first came up with the concept for this podcast, we wanted to showcase diverse perspectives, to give points of views on issues and topics from as many and as different voices as we could. As you watch the news and listen to stories, ask yourself, is it objective or is it catering to a single perspective? Stay safe out there, my dear listeners. Wear your mask, follow us on social, and until next time, Let's keep brewing the chai.